This is God's Word. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews, that is the Jewish religious leaders, because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to hear and to receive with joy and humility your word read and proclaimed. Apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Grant belief to the unbeliever, repentance to the sinner, comfort to the one who looks to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, here we have the fourth of Jesus' great I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them, just like there are seven signs affirming the deity and authority of Christ. We also have seven um, I am statements, making it very clear who Jesus claimed to be. Um, He has said so far in this Gospel, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Last week we saw that he said, I am the door or the gate for the sheep. And here, once in verse 11 and another time in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. Now the word translated good is the Greek word kalos. It suggests nobility. It can also suggest great worth. Jesus' goodness speaks to his eternal worth, his eternal nobility. And if we were to do a survey of the Old Testament prophets, one of the things that we would see popping up routinely is that through those prophets, men like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, God was revealing himself as a shepherd to his people. He seized upon that particular vocation to give a metaphor about what he was like with his people. Because there's something significant about this role. There is something unique about the vocation of shepherd that cannot quite be captured by anything else. In his commentary on the Gospel of John, D.A. Carson writes that many people in the industrialized West have a somewhat sentimentalized view of shepherds and shepherding. We picture men out in a beautiful meadow with long white robes and the question mark staff and kind of staring pensively off into the distance with a snow white little lamb around their necks and that just wasn't it at all 
The role of shepherd, the vocation, required a lot of grit. It was exhausting work, physically demanding work, dirty work, and at times even dangerous. And consider the conditions of the landscape in that part of the world and the stress that would place upon a shepherd of sheep. All around Jerusalem you'll find desert. All you have to do is hike over the Mount of Olives, about a 45-minute hike is all it will take you, and you are suddenly in the desert region where Jesus himself was taken for his 40 days of fasting and temptation. Continue to travel on across the Jordan River, and you can travel for a couple of thousand miles across barren desert through Saudi Arabia and Iraq. So many of the great accounts recorded for us in Scripture, the stories of Abraham and Moses, of Jacob and David and Elijah, all the way up to John the Baptist and, of course, Jesus. These are desert stories. For thousands of years, the people in those regions have herded sheep in the desert. Now, they do get rain. If you're there from October to March, you'll witness some rains strong enough that it will make dormant seeds in the soil there, in that arid soil, spring to life rather quickly. And for a time, you have these rather green and verdant-looking pastures, which the shepherds, of course, will wisely take quick advantage of. But for most of the year, it is not that way, and it's hard to find food, and it's hard to find water for your flocks. Dangers are constant, from steep cliffs to rocky fells to, of course, uh, the predators that lurk in and around, not to mention the thieves. Psalm 23 is, is so helpful here because it helps us to understand the sorts of things required of a shepherd in a desert world. He finds food and water. He secures pasture for the flock. He leads through dangerous places with his own comforting presence. This is the shepherd we need. We live in a hostile land full of treachery and sin. And the sin is not just out there, but the sin that is in here, in here. I require the guidance of a good shepherd. I require the leadership of one who knows where the good food and the good water are, who can set a table before me in the presence of a barren land. And I need to be led by one who is able to make me safe in the valley of the shadow of death. We need, we need the voice of our good shepherd in this hostile environment in which we live. It is a world full of all the sorts of sins that can quickly burn a life down. We can name those sins because they're the very things that we see paraded every day through our media and on our streets championed by everybody from politicians to pundits to CEOs and all of the most powerful culture makers. We know all of those sins. We see them paraded every day. But what about the much more subtle forms of worldliness which tell people like you and me that God is ultimately irrelevant? The sort of attitude that excuses our pride. Not just their pride, but our pride. Our greed, our lust, our lack of mercy. I need a shepherd. 
to help me navigate my heart. The desert world that is oftentimes my life. Now, because of the unique responsibilities of their vocation, uh, shepherds tended to require a mixture of what we might call uh, the, 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 the tough and tender virtues. A shepherd had to be tough. First Samuel 17, we read David's account of how he battled off a lion and a bear. There's no mention of a tiger, but a lion and a bear in defense of the flock. Such actions require toughness, courage, decisiveness, the willingness to use directed aggression. Shepherd had to have those things. But a shepherd also had to be tender. In Isaiah 40, the Lord is depicted as tending his flock, gathering his lambs into his arms, carrying them close to his heart, gently leading the young. A good shepherd is compassionate. Psalm 95, he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Isn't that a tender image of God's compassion for us? This shepherd provides, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And what good news this is that we have from the lips of Jesus that he says, that's who I am. I am the good shepherd. Through Ezekiel, God said, because of the fact that my people have been scattered, because of their incessant sin, because of their rebellion, because they have been led astray by bad shepherds, I, I myself, will be their shepherd. And Jesus now comes and says, that's who I am. The moral and theological center of Jesus' teaching here, I think, can be found in verses 14 and 15. You see what he says? I am the good shepherd... This is the second time he said that. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That's the axis point, I think, around which everything else here revolves. And there's so many great lessons we can learn about the character of Jesus from this shepherd metaphor that he himself appeals to. But at the heart of it, is what he says repeatedly here in this paragraph five times where he refers to the fact that he lays down his life for the sheep. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. First, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of the rest of our time, does that make sense? Um, Considering the sufficient power of Jesus' death. The sufficient power of Jesus' death. Now, here... Jesus moves from that parable slash metaphor of shepherds, flocks, and sheepfolds, and he moves now directly to kerygma. It's a great Greek reference there. Gospel. Gospel announcement. He is the good shepherd who dies for the sheep. You see there verses 12 and 13, Jesus points out that a shepherd merely who is a hired hand who has no ownership stake in the sheep at all, will flee as soon as a wolf shows up. And they will then become prey for the predator. Because he has no personal stake in the sheep 
at all. He's just a hired hand. Now, Jesus is, is making some comparisons without coming out and spelling it out directly for us that this is how, Israel, your shepherds have been behaving over your souls. And unfortunately, we do see it in the church today. Men who use a church or use particular congregants for their own sinful, selfish purposes. But Jesus points then through this to what the faithful shepherd does, the invested shepherd. He's one who fights off the predators, risking himself in the process. That's just a part of the vocation. And here Jesus states five times that he not only risks his life for the sheep, but that he deliberately, purposefully lays down his life for the sheep. He dies for the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Five times Jesus says, I have come to die for the sheep. Now it needs to be pointed out that this was not a typical part of a shepherd's job description. Risk? Yes. Dying for the sheep? No. A dead shepherd does the flock no good. So what Jesus is saying here is actually quite extraordinary. It's not just typical shepherd talk. Good shepherds might get together and talk about the last wolf they saw or the last lion they had to chase off, that sort of thing, or or a pack of thieves they had to fight with, but they would never say, and the next thing I'm going to do is die for them. That would do no good for the sheep. So what's Jesus up to? Well, Jesus, while he possesses all the qualities of a good shepherd, he's not simply a good shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He does what is required of no other shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. In fact, he came expressly for that purpose. He says there in verse 18, No one takes it from me, I lay it down. I have authority to do it, and I have authority to take it back up again. Now, the language is very important that Jesus uses. Jesus' death was for the sheep. That is, Jesus' death was purposeful. It was for something. It was directed. Jesus was not a random victim of injustice. He died of his own volition, a will that stretches back into the eternal mysteries of the Godhead. And he does so for his sheep. So Jesus' death was purposeful and directed. Jesus did not die a random death for an unspecified people accomplishing an unaccomplished goal. When Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, the sins of God's people, the flock, were atoned for. When we talk about atonement, we mean something along the lines of a covering Our sins were covered, our sins were forgiven, our sins were taken away at the cross. Now don't misunderstand. Certainly the full economy of God's gracious salvation has to be accounted for. All the way up to 
our repentance and faith. But our sins were addressed on the cross. They were atoned for on the cross. Romans 5.9 Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. We are not justified by our choice. We are justified by His blood. 1 Peter 1 You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus said that He came into the world, Mark 10.45, to give His life as a ransom for many. Scripture affirms that atonement for sinners was definitively accomplished on the cross. His life was not stolen from him. He laid down his life willingly because his death was for a fixed purpose, a purpose which he infallibly accomplished. We call this doctrine the doctrine of the atonement. More specifically, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died in our place as our substitute. We refer to this also with an accompanying doctrine. Sometimes it's referred to as limited atonement, or I prefer particular redemption, or definite atonement. It is a glorious and beautiful and reassuring and thoroughly biblical doctrine. It upholds the position that Jesus' death on the cross was not merely an act of goodwill, towards mankind in general, nor did Jesus make salvation just a mere possibility on the cross. The Bible will not tolerate such a low view of Christ's work on the cross. The Bible will not tolerate the idea that Jesus merely made atonement potential on the cross. Jesus did not say, I lay down my life in hopes that somewhere someone will come to me. He did not say, I lay down my life for every single individual who's ever lived in the exact same way in hopes that at least some of them might believe. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the particular, effectual, substitutionary atonement of his people, the sheep the flock of God. From the cross, Jesus declared it is finished. Not it's possible. J.I. Packer, the late great J.I. Packer, writes this, quote, It cannot be overemphasized that we have not seen the full meaning of the cross Till we have seen particular redemption at the center of the gospel, flanked on the one hand by total inability and unconditional election, and on the other by irresistible grace and final preservation. For the full meaning of the cross only appears when the atonement is defined in terms of those four truths. Christ died to save a certain company of helpless sinners upon whom God had set his free saving love. Christ's death ensured the calling and keeping the present and final salvation of all whose sins he bore. That is what Calvary meant and means. The cross saved. The cross saves. 
I'm driving home this point not because I want to belittle anyone who comes from a non-reformed tradition. That is not my goal. I'm emphasizing this because what Jesus states here and elsewhere about the objects of his atonement, the same truth further illuminated in other parts of the New Testament and anticipated in the Old Testament, this doctrine of Christ's atonement gives to Jesus his due glory and provides the ground of our assurance. Some of you struggle with assurance of salvation. You have a tender conscience. And so you sin and are tempted and you wonder, how can I be saved? Or you see other people that have seemed to have so much more deeper affections and you wonder, where's my excitement? I must not be saved. And I want to caution you against that sort of thinking. I want to caution you against the sort of thinking that says, I must be saved by my affections rather than the truth that you are only ever saved by the shed blood of Christ. On the cross, Jesus did not say, okay, I've done my part. I've made redemption a general possibility. Now do your part. What a terribly weak message to put in the lips and the minds of Jesus. God did not put His Son to grief. The Father did not put His Son upon the cross so that He could make atonement a potentiality. On the cross, Jesus accomplished atonement for that vast multitude of people that God has known and called to Himself since before the foundations of the world. We have a Savior who says, I was pierced for your transgressions. I was crushed for your iniquities. Jesus purchased with His blood men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The only reason God can promise that His one holy nation, His one kingdom of priests will be made up of men and women from all the peoples. The only reason He can promise that is because Jesus died for the elect. On the cross, Jesus actually, truly bore the sins of every believer. The sins of all whom God has called to Himself. The sins of all of those who will come to trust in Christ. Canons of Dort, one of the great summaries of the Scripture's teaching on salvation in particular from the Dutch Reformed Church several centuries ago, states this, Although the death of God's Son is the only and entirely complete satisfaction for sins, it is of infinite value and worth, listen to this, more than sufficient to atone for the sins of the whole world. It was God's will that Christ, through the blood of the cross, by which he confirmed the new covenant, should effectively redeem for every people, tribe, nation, and language all those and only those who were chosen from eternity to salvation and given to him by the Father. Remember how we've already heard from Jesus in John's Gospel that Jesus will not lose any of whom the Father gives him because he lays down his life for them. This is why Jesus says that 
He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In John 6, Jesus says that he came to save those whom the Father has given him. Matthew 1.21 says Jesus died for his people. John 15.13 says Jesus lays down his life for his friends. Acts 20.28, God shed his blood for the church. Ephesians 5.25, Jesus died for his bride. Ephesians 1.4, Jesus died for those who have been chosen in Christ. Charles Spurgeon, because every good sermon has to quote Spurgeon. He's our favorite Baptist. Listen to this from Spurgeon. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. But it is the view of the atonement which says no one in particular was saved at the cross that actually limits Christ's death. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no one can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. Think of the songs we sing. In my place condemned he stood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. Took the blame, bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is the power of Christ's death. Secondly, consider the universal scope of Jesus' death, the universal scope of Jesus' death. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Again, Jesus is speaking to his fellow Jews at this point, and Jesus makes it clear that the people for whom he came to die are not just members of the Hebrew family. They're not just those who are of ethnic descent from Abraham, but Gentile as well. Well before the Apostle Paul went on his mission to reach the Gentiles for Christ, Jesus was already saying, that's why I'm here. The sheepfold of Judah does not encompass the totality of Christ's redemptive purpose. It was never intended to be that way. We can go back to the God's covenant with Abraham to see that. God does not have two people, Jews and Gentiles, Israel and the church. God has only ever had one people, one way of salvation. Now that's not to say that Israel has not played a particularly important role in redemptive history. Indeed they have. The incarnate Christ was a Jew. The disciples, the apostles were Jews. Every Christian or 
Everyone who trusts in Christ, whether they be a Jew or a Gentile, is a son and daughter of Abraham. But the vast multitude of people, Jew and Gentile, whom God has gathered up in Christ from the world's nations, constitute one nation, one holy nation, one people. Look again at that last clause in verse 16. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Not two flocks with one shepherd, not two flocks with two shepherds. One flock, one shepherd. The language is interesting there. The two key words in the Greek are poimne and poimen. If we were to translate it more literally, it would sound something like this. One sheep place and one sheep people or one sheep person. As it is, I prefer the English. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus gathers us to himself, not to whatever God or religious system or whatever practice of spirituality or whatever system of ethics we prefer. He will be the one shepherd over the one flock. That's the church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, all from the moment that Abraham, after the fall, really believed and trusted in God's promise. From that time on, God has saved his people the exact same way, by grace through faith, looking towards his promised Messiah. And nearly every one of us here today are those that Jesus is referring to in verse 16. Most of us, the vast majority of us, are Gentiles. We're from the other sheepfold. We were outsiders, and God made us insiders by his sovereign grace, choosing us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Jesus, our good shepherd, pursued us, and he brought us to himself, taking us under his care. And all of this makes me think about our place here on this hill. We have set two words at the heart of our vision as a church. Those two words are welcome and worship. That we are to welcome people to come to Christ, to join us in the worship of King Jesus. God has more people out here in this community in which we live that still must be gathered in. And the Good Shepherd will bring them because the Good Shepherd will not lose any of whom the Father has given to him. They live in our neighborhoods, they work with us, they sit in class with us, they stand in line with us, men and women and students and children who have never tasted the goodness of the gospel, souls who have never had the aching weight of their sin lifted off of them. It's why we must welcome them into our lives, into our homes. We must welcome them to this place on the hill that we occupy to hear the gospel. Look around as you drive to and from this hill. Look at all the homes being built, the neighborhoods going up. Every house, every townhome, every apartment represents a soul, a family. And it's why we are going to, by God's grace, provide more space on this hill to accommodate more and more of our neighbors. To gather more people, to fellowship with more people, to welcome more people into the worship of Jesus. To teach more people the Bible and disciple them. And it is also why, by God's grace, we will plant a church. 
It's because they have not all yet been gathered in, but they will be. And don't we want to be among the ones saying, here we are, Lord. Use us. Send us. Make us a bright light on this hill. Well, finally, let's consider the divine love displayed in Jesus' death. The divine love displayed in Jesus' death. Earlier in the third chapter of John, in his conversation with Nicodemus, we remember Jesus' words well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The reasons for the Father sending the Son are multifaceted. But at the heart of it we can say that it was love. Love for the sheep. Love for the lost ones. Love for the sinners. Jesus says here in verse 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Jesus is not saying here that the love of the Father for the Son is conditional, but rather to see that Jesus' voluntary death is a hallmark of His union with the Father's will and an expression of the love that they share together. There is one indivisible perfect will within the Godhead between Father, Son, and Spirit. And what the Father decrees, the Son accomplishes. And what the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies in perfection. The Son voluntarily laid down His life for the sheep in accordance with the singular, undivided, indivisible triune will. And this, an expression of God's great love. As one commentator puts it, quote, the mutual love of the Father and Son thus, we, thus was seen in a deed of love for the world. And all of this is why Jesus can say there in verse 18, no one takes it from me. Was there injustice around Jesus? Yes, a lot of it. Were the people who were betraying Jesus, trying Him in a sham of a trial, torturing Him and then executing Him, were they behaving unjustly and sinfully? Absolutely. But Jesus could have stopped it all with a word. But the Father and the Son and the Spirit always work in perfect, indivisible unity with one another. And what came about was that Jesus accomplished what the Father had decreed so that ultimately He was not a victim of, unjust, of, of, of injustice, but He laid down His life of His own accord. He says, by my own authority I laid it down, and by my authority I will take it back up again. We see there that the resurrection and the crucifixion act in concert with one another, that His resurrection was the public vindication of His atoning work as He died. And Jesus says, I have the authority over it all. We see there then the, the power of Jesus' death and the, the divine love behind it. And then this peculiar thing there happening in verse 19, 20, and 21. 
It's strange, isn't it? Because once before, earlier, after Jesus had healed the man born blind, there is now once again a bit of a division between the religious authorities. They're divided. Some are saying he has a demon and he's insane. And that pretty much covers all the bases, right? And, and then others are saying, I, I'm not so sure. The, the things he's saying seem to have a, a clarity to them, a, a moral coherence that, that don't seem to be the babblings of an insane man or a demonized man. That's not the person that we're listening to here. Whatever else his faults may, might be, he does, not, he does not bear any of the hallmarks of demon possession or insanity. And besides, he just healed that man born blind. Nobody does that. So there's a division. Now, they're eventually going to get over their differences. Bless their hearts. But I think in that moment, for just a fleeting second, we see that Jesus forces a decision, doesn't he? Nobody can come to Jesus and go, eh, yeah, there's some stuff I like, other stuff I don't like. I like the Jesus of the middle, you know. I like all the, his ethical teachings, except his teachings that I don't think are ethical, you know. I, I love when he says love people, but I, I, I really, really don't like when he says that people are going to go to hell. Hmm. You just can't play that game with Jesus. He forces a decision. And listen, if he's not divine, if he has a demon, or if he's just a delusional megalomaniac, then do not waste your time with the Bible or the church in an effort to add a little morality and spirituality to your life. Jesus isn't the one to come for for that. But if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if Jesus is who the apostles knew him to be, if Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen just as thousands were witness to, if his lasting power to raise up sinners to new life means anything at all, then it means that he is Lord and Savior. He is the I am in the flesh. And that means, as we see here, that he is also the good shepherd of God's people. And he is able to be your good shepherd. He'll hold you to himself, if you like. He'll bring you into the flock. He'll care for you and lead you into green pastures. He'll put these words on your lips, if you'll trust him, if you'll believe in him. You make me lie down in green pastures. You restore my soul. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. He can make that your story if you'll look to Him, if you'll believe in Him. The Lord Jesus will be your good shepherd. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would now commit your word to our hearts and minds, that we would not forget the truth that we have heard from your word today, but that it would take root in our hearts, that it would produce a harvest of righteousness and faithfulness within us. Grant, oh Lord, grant faith to the doubter today. And grant sweet assurance to the struggler today. And grant to us all, Lord, that you would conform us more and more into the image of Christ. 
And this we pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.